0: Take away the sins of many people. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him.
1: Let me say my point in case it doesn't come across. Uh, and even in saying it, I'm—it's—I uh, uh, think there's a point here <laughs> in what I'm saying. I'm trying to do two things, and one is that we—I'll uh, look a little bit at the tabernacle and temple. And the idea in both is that there's two things that uh, they're trying to get rid of. One is impurity, and the other is willful sin. And all of the various rites and rituals I would claim, and I'm not claiming this, but others before me have claimed, are connected with death. And, and so that takes some explanation. I'm not necessarily going to do all of that explanation. I'll do a little bit of it. So the first thing is nearly, you know, the idea of the impurity connected to death is inevitable in some sense, and it can be ritually cleansed. And in terms of the tabernacle or the temple, the uh, that which can be ritually cleansed in this sense uh, is uh, the outward parts of the temple. And the second, or willful sin, or rebellion uh, pertains, it penetrates to the Holy of Holies, and it is addressed by the key sacrifice, or the key work of atonement, which is the pinnacle of everything else. And of course, the, the that's my first point. My second point is that This is very different than, in other words, especially here in chapter 9, we could read all of chapter 9 as a kind of penalty and payment of sacrifice. There is the language of sacrifice we talked a little bit about last week. And these are very much connected to Hebrews chapter 9. And then i gonna make a third point that goes beyond either of these, and that is kind of the last verse we read here that ultimately the salvation which we receive in Christ, it moves beyond any notion of sin and evil, and it has to do with fulfilling the purposes of creation. Jake, you have the last verse again. Read that last verse, one. Sure.
2: So Christ who sacrificed wants to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for
1: him. So the... Salvation is not simply bearing sin, but salvation goes beyond that. It's a, it's not simply a payment for a penalty, but there is a positive aspect to it. In a lot of this, I'm again referencing Richard Berry and um, his uh, dissertation. Uh, he, he's running down the purity laws, and he, his point is that the purity laws, the temple, the tabernacle, are summed up in this battle this confrontation between life and death and you remember the commandment you know to moses after the giving of the law the, the thing that moses said is that choose this day either life or death and his point is that really sums up the whole system and so the first step is to distinguish those two things and that's part of what the purity rituals are about is that it's not always easy to uh, that death is a pervasive thing It's it's uh, and so the purity laws were a kind of training for people to remain vigilant or understand or to distinguish these two things and of course part of this is that at some point everybody's impure it's not so when we talk about impurity or as I sent out I said cleansing it's not simply cleansing from something that You know is is uh, morally wrong, but in our daily lives there's death and life, there's night and day, as a kind of natural you know process. And so, uh, part of the purity laws was to begin to distinguish then the pervasiveness of the problem of death, and it's impossible in a sense to avoid death. And in the setting, of, you know, Mount Zion represents life, an opportunity to come to the one who is life, Who and so the idea is to choose life. And so in this, Yahweh is the, the source of hope. He's the one, you know, this is really the theme of the Old Testament. He breathes life into dust, and for Israel, the victory over death is going to appear, and that is pointed to sacramentally, it's anticipated on, in the tabernacle and temple on Mount Zion. And the place is the, a kind of Edenic presence of God and, and fulfillment of the life, of the tree of life, you know, that's restored in the book of Revelation. So the idea is choose life. As a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, each person is called upon to distinguish between life and death in their own lives. Every human being will face the forces of death, and part of this is just being human, it's part of this is the processes of the body. Uh, but the point of this is that to recognize uh, uh, on the part of Israel that their fragility distinguishes them from God, who is the source of life, and unclean then refers to that basic truth that is ensnared by death. Yes, there is fragility in here somewhere.
2: <laughs> they were giving me a hard time about
1: it. Yeah, we're all fragile beings, yes. And we in a violent be more, world. In a violent world. Yeah. So unclean did not mean disgusting disgusting. It was not shocking. It was not even unavoidable some or, or or rather avoidable. It was unclean didn't mean you were a wicked person. Uh, it always, it did not make you a social outcast. It was a reminder that we are dust and that we'll return to dust without access to the one who is the giver of life. And the thing that Barry does, and Barry is referencing someone else here, but is that there are four categories, and I won't don't get you know I won't do all of these, but there's four phenomena that have to do with the and I'm talking about this in chapter nine, because chapter nine is all about the tabernacle talking about the rituals, but there the four phenomena are death, blood, semen, And scale disease, or a skin disease. And the common denominator in all of these is death. Uh, And the first one, you know, is obvious that you don't touch dead bodies or corpses or carcasses. And, you know, Numbers talks about when you do that, uh, if you enter a tent, and of course you have to do that at some point because somebody has to take care of the dead, that anybody who does this is unclean for seven days. In an ancient society, it would be as, you know, I don't know if you've ever prepared a body for a funeral. In Japan, it's kind of, you have to, uh, and in Thailand, I assume you had to prepare, you had to do the preparations yourself. And I mean, here, it's almost like you have people that do that for you. But in usual, usual, what happens in, in, I think, in Japan, too, and in Eastern societies, is that if you have a family member that dies, and it used to be in the West, too, that you prepared the body. My mother remembers... Oh, I shouldn't tell that story. Okay. Faith is grimacing. Okay. Mark that one off.
0: In India, they carry them down to the riverside and and burn them, right?
1: Yeah, India is kind of funny, and you guys are familiar with India because they have a class of people to to handle the dead, oh. the untouchables, right? Deal with the dead. Uh, yeah, and there's this the there's a whole the the this the, the silent towers. And they take the bodies up on the towers and then they let the vultures eat the bodies.
3: Where is that?
1: India. You have it? am I making this?
3: Sp- <laughs> well, somewhere
2: in, in do yeah,
0: Himalayas, in they usually have. Yeah. Because they're supposed to go back to the river, isn't that the...
1: That's right.
0: Something.
3: The Except for the Christians. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, in some way, death is connected with uncleanness in, in many societies. If, uh, and so, what would happen if you touched a body? You know, in India, you're an untouchable. <clears throat> in Hebrew society, which there was no class of people that did this, everybody did this, but they suffered a kind of temporary exile, And the picture is that they're in solidarity with the person, the one who has deceased. They're in solidarity with their loved one in exile. So that death or being connected with death is a kind of exile or alienation from the society as a whole. And so there were these times when you you had to abstain from coming to the tabernacle And we could almost call these a normal part of life insofar as death, in other words, it's a part of the regular rituals that's connected to the tabernacle and the temple. It's Jacob Milligram, if anybody wants to read up on this, he talks about this extensively. And it's not that everybody agrees with him, but his argument is that you can sum up all of the rituals of the tabernacle and the temple as in some way... Uh, a trying, you know, a trying to cleanse impurities from death or rebellion from death, uh, and he does this. With, he goes into detail about skin disease. I'll do that one. I thought it was kind of interesting because the, in uh, Leviticus 13 uh, and 14, there is a with these some of these skin diseases, you lose color and the skin becomes scaly. Uh, as I'm scratching the scales on my arm here, uh, and it makes you look like a living corpse. And Milgram says, the main clue for understanding the place of scale disease, he calls it, in the impurity f- system is the fact that it is an aspect of death. Its bear is treated like a corpse. Think here of you know, those who had leprosy in the time of Jesus. They were exiled. In Japan, faith grew up uh, near what we called, or they called, the leper colony. Of course, it was Hansen's disease, uh, and in J- Japanese society, those people literally were not allow- allowed at that point in time to go into town and mix with. Now they can because they recognized that was the law. they cha- they literally changed the law. <laughs> That was one of the most moving things I saw her father do, that ministry, that ministry he'd go there on Sundays and, you know, take, go. And they, the, one of the lepers talked about, and that's the wrong word, but one of the people from that community talked about that her father coming out. and oh, how, he his at Well, yeah, he, came, he spoke at her father's funeral, and mm-hmm. the place was packed, you know. And this, first of all, it was interesting, they had the man from the leper colony speaking, and what he described was when her father first came out, how shocked they all were, because, like any good American, he stuck his hand out to shake hands. And of course, for them, they were never touched. You know, other people outside of that community did not touch them. Um, and and uh, so he broke, in a sense, he broke down those barriers. And, and I think that that's, in in a real world sense then, <clears throat> so many of these things are, you know, death and exile. Maybe quite literally work out in that way. If you remember uh, in Numbers 12, Aaron and Miriam uh, murmur against Moses, and she is afflicted with a skin disease, and her skin is as white as snow, and Aaron pleads with Moses to let her not be like a corpse. In other words, don't treat her like one of the dead. Um, I won't go into it, but what Milgram does, he goes through all of these. He goes through vaginal bleeding and semen, and, and you don't necessarily want to know all the details, but if you don't in other words, what he, the point he's making is that it's all has to do with, in some way, it's connected uh, with death or dying, and so what is what the rituals are aimed at is a pu- always a purification from death. Now, if you if you believe in me at this point, this is going to make a huge difference as to what we think the you know sacrifice of atonement is, because it's the ultimate cleansing from death. And that's its point. poipus,
2: <laughs>
1: as they say in New Jersey. And it's a stroke that I've been having lately. You
0: better erase that from the recording. I <laughs> know people from New Jersey. <laughs>
1: I've offended a whole class of people. Um that the way you cleanse someone's conscience, I would claim, is the way the whole temple or tabernacle is cleansed, you cleanse it from death. Our consciences are going to be cleansed. You know, this is the, going back to the argument in chapter 2, uh, that what Christ does for us is uh, rescue us from death. I w- I'm claiming that the writer of Hebrews never departs from that theme. To read penal, you know, I don't need to go into it, but to read penal uh, substitution here is, I think, to miss the point of chapter 9. So to be unclean was not to be wicked or disgusting. It was, in fact, an ordinary feature of life, and it represented a moment of exile from that perfect existence represented in the temple and we could say the glory of the temple. The word glory plays a key part in Hebrews and in chapter 9. You know, in chapter back when we talk about, uh, you know, the ascension of Christ, the thing that happened to Christ was his glorification, and Christ, there you know, there are pictures in uh, extra-biblical literature of Moses' ascension, and of course the angels are seen as those who would protect, you know, God from, you know, like in the garden, those who would. And the way that Moses is said to ascend into the presence of God is that God wrapped him in his glory. And this protected Moses then. I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just saying that this is an illustration then of the same idea that the way in which we are made, you know, uh, we are received and, you know, able to enter is on the basis of the glory that Christ himself experiences. So the temporary exile is, you know, from the temple was relieved through purification, through the idea of rest, through sacrifice. And uh, there's two things here. First of all, there's a full acknowledgement of the reality of death. And that is uh, confronted, and there is there is no attempt to ignore death, but neither is there an obsession over death. That in that is that I think you'll find in some religions, in some societies, in which death seems to, in some way, be the center of gravity, and has the final word. So, I think even here in Hebrews, we're moving beyond that, but there is the acknowledgement of it, and in some way, a resolution of it. Uh, And so, part of the resolution is you acknowledge the weakness of the flesh, and in doing so, you come to the source of life, who is God, who rescues us from death. One of the things that Milgram does that I thought was kind of interesting He uh, says that there is this gradations of pollution connected to the temple. That is that the less severe pollution contaminates the outer courtyard. And that would be the place that the burnt offering will handle. Then there's the more severe pollution. The second one has to do with the malevolent power to push, you know, uh, through to the shrine. And there you have the altar of incense, the menorah and the showbread table. And the third level is the most wicked, and it is an evil or death that penetrates to the holy of holies, the ark, the place where the ark of the covenant is kept. It's God's very dwelling place. And of course what you have here is that the place of God, God's presence, God's dwelling place, would be infected with death. And you, those two things in some way, are that's the battle taking place. Uh, so this, it, uh, and his, Milgram's point is, it's not, this final third grade, is, uh, third level is not something that is just even a general human wrongdoing, He says it's a covenantal violation. He says it's rebellion. And that's what's handled at this third level. Uh, He connects it to a political sphere. He spells it out that it's, you know, it's like a vassal and a king, and it's the, you know, one who rebels. And so... uh, in Leviticus 16, the sin that pierces the heart of the sanctuary, this is Milgram, most deeply is Israel's cold violations of the covenant promise to the Lord. Open and wanton defiance of the Lord. Remember, chapter 9 is all about a shift in covenant, a shift in, you know, uh, the relationship in regards to promise. Uh, so in, in a kind of conclusion we could say well we're always subject to the powers of death because we're in the world and we're human and what is being communicated is the, uh, an awareness of this and then the idea uh, that Zion, the mountain of, uh, of life you know the holy hill that the temple is built on, built on can have no association with the valley of death and yet David can say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, that God is there, that your rod and staff comforts me. Uh, there is a cosmic conflict involving all, all of creation, and it's a conflict that is between life and death, centered symbolically in the temple. And I think that's the battle that we're seeing played out on the cross of Christ. It's a battle between life and death. And so when we say that Christ defeats death, there is the victory in this cosmic battle. The psalm says, One thing I ask of the Lord only, that do do I seek, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to frequent his temple. So it may not be safe, but there is nothing better. You know, a day in the house of the Lord is better than a thousand years otherwise. Uh, one more thought here, and that is that I thought Milgram did a thing with the high priestly garments. I won't go into the detail about that, but it, it seems like the, the point of the, the high priest, you know, he changes his garments and all of this, and it seemed like the, the point is that his garment is in what I was saying about Moses it's as glorious as you get in terms of a human manufactured garment and the idea is that the high priest is representative and Christ will share his vestments his garments with us Uh, the more detail you get into the more interesting this is though if you want to follow this up um The only offering that is described in Leviticus that has to do with blood manipulation uh, is the blood of the burnt offering, which is separated from the body. It's dashed or drained upon the sides of the altar, signifying the fact that life is being given or returned to God via the altar. That's my concluding point. Of summation of all this what's happening with the sacrifices is God interested in death being presented to him no that once I've said all this I hope that's a sacrilege you say no that what is being what is happening is a cleansing from death and the blood then is an offering of life dedicated to God
0: is there a significant difference between all of the other sacrifices that were made and the Sacrifice for atonement.
1: There is, and he goes into great detail about the two goats and what happens with the two goats. Um, that what you know in the sacrifice with the two goats, the sins of the people are laid upon the scapegoat, uh, who is sent into the wilderness and then the blood sacrifice is the other goat that represents life dedicated to God and I'm not saying enough there or I haven't gone into enough but he goes into uh, both both uh, well uh, the uh, Milgram and uh, uh, who was the other guy the, uh, the dissertation that I've been reading
0: so while the the sacrifice after after sacrifice is something that is being left behind, is is there still a significance between redemption from everything and redemption from atonements?
1: Uh, the the difference is that in other words, the idea is that there is a death that is pervasive throughout the system, but the willful rebellion of the people has to do then with the deep spiritual need for cleansing uh, that calls for the ultimate sacrifice. And, uh, it's still, you know, it's in the gradations that I described. It all has to do with death, you know, and, and at some level, you know, the ritual uh, uncleanness is taken care of ritually through blood offerings. But in, a, in the other, with the sacrifice of the atonement, and I, I can talk about this not tonight, because but I can at some other time, the, the significance seems to be uh, that, in fact, the sins are not taken care of, you know, in the, with the goat that is sacrificed in the temple, but in fact, in, a, in the ritual after Nadab and Abihu, who take the, then after that Aaron is told how to do this, and this second goat, they actually burn outside of the city. And as I say this, this should begin to, of course, uh, that it's consumed completely. The idea is that the sin is is uh, gotten rid of, and I think this is the the third point or the key point. The other thing I was going to do here was I went uh, I, on the, if you go onto YouTube. I'm not saying you should do this because it's kind of a silly video but there's a guy on the youtube that it's entitled jesus loves you and this he's a little gray blob that receives this email and it says jesus loves you and the little gray blob says well i thought that's nice but then i read the rest of it which just says and if you don't worship worship him you're going to burn in hell forever <laughs> He acknowledges, that, you know, well, that's a kind of conditional love, and uh, you would expect that Jesus should be more noble than the rest of us. And then he writes back, if Jesus loves me, why does he want to send me to hell? He doesn't want to, but unless you accept him, he's just going to have to. Mm-hmm. And then the gray bloke is kind of confused. Doesn't Jesus make the rules? He asked. Isn't He God after all? Well, He said that. And this part has a profanity in it. I won't use. But Jesus loves you, but His dad thinks you're a blank blank. <laughs> oh. Oh <my> God. <laughs> well, that doesn't seem fair. He says. Uh, then he was utterly confused. It says, "P.S. By the way, G- uh, Jesus is His own dad." <laughs> Um, that is that is all of the confusion that is surrounding uh the I think the the problem of sacrifice and salvation very often as we often get it um what I think i we've been doing is not necessarily i haven't done away with sacrificial language but we've reinterpreted it And on the basis of an understanding of the Old Testament, where we've seen that it's not primarily concerned with payment of a punishment, but resolution of the problem of death and a coming to God for life. And so, you know, this is, I think once you get this, whatever you, this accommodates a lot of different understandings. It still accommodates sacrifice. And it's in no way, you know, certainly Christ died a violent death, but I think that what who did that to him? Well, people did that to him because they deal in death. And the problem then is a defeat of, you know, the devil of the cosmic principalities and powers. And so, you know, several people have approached this from different ways, J. Denny Weaver talks about a narrative, Christus Victor and uh, he says the writer of Hebrews places, you know, in the prophets it says that God does not desire, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, and the writer of Hebrews says a similar thing, that God does not desire sacrifice, but obedience. Putting the problem as I just put it, what is the predicament well, it is of re- one of rebellion that is dealing in death that causes an obstacle between life and God, uh, and so that the sacrifices in a, in ten five that were coming to sacrifices and offerings you have not de- desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And so, what I've said is the the uh, Jewish sacrifice is the expression of a life completely dedicated to God, an expression of selflessness and love. And it's then the setting up of an alternative economy. I won't do any more with that because I've talked too much already. But if you know a little bit about Jacques Derrida and all that, it's kind of an interesting, you know, what Derrida says about capitalism or any human economy is always violent. I think Derrida is right. The, the systems that we create, systems of exchange, are always violent economies. And unfortunately, that's what we've done with the you know, uh, atonement. But I think what is being set up is an economy of grace. Now, it's a, it, it is something that Derrida thought was an impossibility. Derrida projects it out there. He's, he talks about the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, but the Messiah can never come. Because it would have to institute there would have to be an eschatological alternative economy instituted. But I'd say that's precisely what we have in the church is this alternative economy.. Yeah. All right, any comments, questions before we read?
0: It just seems that um, we still struggle with um, failing to do that right today, even in the church. And my example would be um, when you hurt me, I tell you that I forgive you. I tell you that my forgiveness is instantaneous. I've already forgiven you. But then there's these conditions. I don't want you to come too close or I don't trust you anymore or There's conditions, and that's not really forgiveness.
1: Let me say two things about this. This is partly Derrida. Derrida says that any time you give a gift, it is no longer a gift, because then immediately the other person will feel obligated, and so suddenly you've entered into a gift in exchange. What is taking place with grace and forgiveness there is a content that we are called to that is that it is not a contentless or a, you know it, it, it the grace of God comes to us in the circumstance of entering into the Holy of Holies and I think what is representative of the Holy of Holies is that um, the uh, the, the fellowship of the saints that in some way the content of this grace that is given to us by God is in the circumstance of being part of the fellowship of the saints that we really achieve uh, a enduring forgiveness in that sense. I didn't really answer your question. I'm just saying that sometimes I think we make uh, we imagine, you know, this is Dairy Doll with his cat. He said, "Well, I feed my cat, but I'm doing violence to all the other cats because I'm not feeding them." Sorry, sure. So. <laughs>
3: um,
1: but the the idea here is that, well, no, God is providing a universal forgiveness and grace to us but it does require us, in order to receive or accept that grace, to receive that forgiveness, I think that we do have to, uh, that there is a content to that forgiveness in which we put ourselves into the presence of God. That's a vague thought, I guess. Did you have something very? You had something more specific. In I,
0: I guess I was just connecting. Um, you know the uh, uh, how how the meaningless of, of the sacrifices um, uh, or how how they how they didn't fulfill what was what they were intended for is the same way in which um, we try uh, to say that. You know we're we're truly repentant. Uh, we're fully repentant of our sins, or that we take the grace and the forgiveness that we get—that's pure from Him. And I say that I give that to everybody else, but really I don't. I'm not perfect. Right. I'm not Jesus. Right. I fail at doing it. You fail at doing it for me, and and we don't admit that like it's, yeah. it's it's like the spreading of the blood over and over again.
1: It's like saying, I forgive you, but I never want to see you again. <laughs> and that's precisely what forgiveness cannot be in Israel. I mean and, and in the church. What what the idea of death or ex, you know was connected to exile. And so they're momentarily exiled. The idea being that there would come a a community and a people in which there is no exile. And so real forgiveness is, I think, in other words, this is, it, it as long as we're talking about, we understand Israel translates into the community of the church. We're talking about a corporate problem and a corporate solution. The defilement of sin and death is a corporate thing, and I don't mean to exclude the individual in this, but the, that it takes care of the individual. The way that we're made healthy and approach God is where two or three are gathered together in his name. And so you cannot forgive in the Christian community and ex- exile people.
0: Because the sin might be between you and I, but it ultimately breaks the fellowship of the kingdom of Mary.
1: If it breaks fellowship, there's no forgiveness. Where there's no forgiveness, we're outside of God's grace. We're outside of God. Yeah, you get the point. What about like,
2: the messages where they're like, correct them,
3: but if they don't change their ways, kick them out of the fellowship?
0: Isn't that the same concept of, of um, I can't remember all of the, but you know, if you if you do this sin, bring this sacrifice, and if it's this, bring this sacrifice, and and isn't that the whole point? That all of that is me God doesn't want that.
3: Yeah, but I'm talking about like I don't know what book in. It says treat him as an unbeliever, right?
1: Yeah. In Corinthians, where the man is living with his father's wife, or they're living, they're having sexual relations, Paul says you shouldn't do that. And
0: isn't there a difference between, oh, what is it, um, the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death? You and I talked about that before, that the sin that leads to death is that habitual, um, cognitive, repetitive...
1: Rebellion. Eventually sin becomes total rebellion.
0: That answer? Mm. Weekly. Well, it's unrepentant, I guess. Because
3: there's not a seeking for So it's, it's still conditional.
1: Yeah, that, and that was what I was trying to get at with the idea. There is a content, a necessary form to the grace of God. It's not this formless, universal forgiveness. Because the very thing that we're being forgiven of, we have to recognize, involves life and death. And there are acts, both moral and otherwise, that involve us in death. And the way that, what forgiveness means is to pass from death to life. And so there is a specific content to God's grace and forgiveness as we have it. Alec.
0: So, like, to put it in just a... I don't know what these are, prepositions, phrase. We're forgiven from something um, as well as of something. So, um, like, I'm, I'm forgiven of a thing that I've done, as in I'm not going to be held against me for but I'm also forgiven from that, as in I'm within a community that's helping restore me from the thing that, that I was doing. Like, that's the problem itself, and I'm being brought out of that. Not conditional,
1: but that's the content? Yeah, yeah, I like that, I like that.
2: Also, the thing about forgiveness and the Bible and everything is that it's subjective because it involves us, people, and people are subjective. And so there's like, there's a form, but it's also somewhat moving. Because we are so... We're all different. Everything is different. There's no algorithm to it.
0: So, your forgiveness to me is might be different compared to your forgiveness to somebody else?
2: Like, every, every situation part? is different. Like, we can't say, Oh, well, forgiveness is saying the sinner's prayer and then um, getting dunked and then that's forgiveness or this is forgiveness. I don't know. It's just talking about these big things. I don't know how it's possible to nail down every situation. This is always.
1: It's every- a moving target. Yeah. Well, I think if we get, if, if part of it is if we get an idea that what's been involved is life and death. and what life and death consist of. You were going to say something, Natalie. Oh, no. Okay.
3: You can also use use the word, when I think of forgiveness, I don't think of it apart from reconciliation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it can't, you know.
0: Repentance. Yeah,
3: Yeah. and that's all involved in reconciliation. It's all tied. it's, It's almost like there can't be reconciliation on one side. And so therefore, that kind of goes back to what you're saying, it's like a, it's, it's not necessarily conditional, but the, I don't know, I mean, you might be able to use that word, but it's not just one-sided, it's a, it's a reconciliation that is like, en, enjoyed together, it, yeah, it's not just like, handed out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's like a machine, it needs both parts. You can't
0: have, you know. Is it valid to make a distinction between um, the forgiveness, grace, and repentance that I have um, between me and God uh, and then the grace and forgiveness and repentance that I work out in the world? I mean... The grace and forgiveness and repentance that I have with God is complete. It's instantaneous. It's authentic. All of those things, pure. Um, but then I have to try and work it out here, and that goes to what you were saying—that what we're dealing with is is something that's concrete. That is all the time Jesus forgave. And didn't put any limitations on his forgiveness and his healing um, but that's because Jesus was God and we're not and so we get that pure part freely but it's working this part out that is subjective that's um, that has these conditions of how badly I've been hurt or how how much repentance I need to work out or
1: my instinct is to say no but
0: there's not a difference
1: <laughs> the words, I don't know how and, and even as I'm saying this I would I would almost want to qualify it but but I think what I've described is in the Old Testament sacrifices and what the writer of Hebrews is describing is the reality of who God is is to be found in the Community of Israel, and then the community of the church. That but we it isn't. we try,
0: try, we do try.
3: It's yeah, but it's not one. Well, I just think of it like it's maybe some people can do it better than others. Okay, that's not what I meant to say, but. <laughs>
0: Now I'm thinking, oh, well, we better put them in charge of the church.
3: No, <laughs> no, what I mean is, some people can grasp the concept of God's forgiveness better than other people. So maybe for you, you feel completely forgiven by God and you're refreshed by that. Well, Maybe there are other people who cannot grasp that if they have not experienced that maybe a lot or regularly within a community that's representing him. So that's why, that's in somewhat, I think there might be more people who cannot just hypothetically imagine a all loving God that they really, you know, it's it's like you can use your imagination, but then I think that's where there's going to be a huge disconnect and, and then trying to also give that idea out to other people. But if you're introduced to that love and grace and acceptance of God through a surrounding people then the same goes for like actually giving it to it's it's not there might not be a disconnect like if you're if you're experiencing it and then able to give it so i'm just saying i think that it's possible for some people to to be able to imagine that but i, I think that like like i'm saying some people can imagine that better than others some people will like they'll not be able to grasp God's love, grace, forgiveness, acceptance and and care to give try it or to share it with anybody else because they haven't actually experienced it. They've only been hurt over and over by God's people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That seems more common. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you.
1: What you're describing, I want to agree with.
3: I well, the point that in the New Testament, that we all grow and right. walk. So, yeah, like Maisie's saying, you may not grasp it when you first hear it. And, yeah, there's a lot of imperfection and a lot of hurt, we're supposed to be growing and coming to a fuller understanding of that mm-hmm. forgiveness and acceptance as mature. So yeah, I don't think it's, you know, it's an instant everybody...
0: It's got the same does, thing all at the it, same it, time. That we do grow and that's... Yeah. We're supposed to be growing. Right? We're supposed
1: to come to a better understanding. Yeah. Sharon, you want to start with 23.
2: Uh, Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We,
1: we talked about that the, the word copy, I think, is a poor translation. And especially it's a misunderstanding if we're thinking, oh, there's this space in heaven and there's space on earth and they're architecturally similar. But the way that we've described it is that uh, the heavenly things are being accomplished on in an earthly, temporal, culminating final age. And Dave, you want to do uh, 24?
0: For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence.
1: So, it... it you know, this is back and he's talked about this heavenly calling, and we are participants in this heavenly calling, that Christ has entered heaven on our behalf. The idea is that, yeah, Christ has done this, and he is our representative, that we've entered into the Holy of Holies, and he's going to say that now you too then can have access to the uh, presence of God. God's, this is, uh, I'm sorry about Derrida, but he he used the word presence in a twofold sense, you know, that I give you present, but presence is also the idea of a human presence. But I think ultimately what he left out of the equation is that God's presence is made available to us, and what death is, is the absence of God. And so the way you give a present is through God's presence. Let's see, uh, Joel, do you have, have that? Uh, Jake, you got it.
2: Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest entered the most holy place every year, with blood that is on his own.
1: And the reason he didn't, because he had an indestructible life. The high priests were inflicted with death, they had to make offerings for themselves, Uh, and they were displaced because of the reality of death. But the argument throughout the writer of Hebrews is that Christ has been... uh, He doesn't need to do this again and again because he's been resurrected and he is offering himself, which is uh, an indestructible life. And then... um, Maisie, you want to do uh, 26?
3: He did not have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself.
1: Uh, the The death of Christ is, uh, the suffering of Christ is a once for all. But it, again, the argument is not that he that it's death that he gives to God, but it's an indestructible life which has passed through death that he gives to God. And so, too, what we are called to is the same thing. Resurrection life. It it does make a difference how you play all this out, where the, the emphasis uh, falls. And then, Faith, you want to do the next one? Okay.
3: Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ will sacrifice once to away the sins of new people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him.
1: And so here, if you think again of the temple as a cosmic in scope, in its representation, uh, that uh, he is not... Christ is not just the one who takes away sin the, the goat sent into the wilderness but he's the one who brings life and the fulfillment of cosmic purposes are realized in the Christ that's a, that's a an alternative reading to penal substitution. Maybe that's an alternative reading to Christianity. I don't know. Um, I think sometimes uh, where penal substitution is, we imagine that's the final and full explanation of the death of Christ, that we're missing a point.